my Bible. So 113, not 112. Okay, here we go. So it's uh, Samek. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandment of my God. Uphold me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Hold me up and I shall be safe, and I shall observe your statutes continually. You reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You put away all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. All right. Corey Chen Boone has a 114. What's that? You are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. That's it. That's, boy, you know, I don't know if, uh, I'm sure I've said it in this class before, but when I was in Israel with mom, as we were going through the Garden of the Gentiles, where they plant a tree for each righteous Gentile that has done something for Israel, all the trees are the same same size because you're going through an area where they plant them, and, you know, they get smaller as you get towards the end because that's, but there was one tree, all the trees are, say, eight, ten feet tall, and there was one tree that was only a few feet tall. And they walked us up and they said, uh, this is Corey Temboom's tree here. And they said it had to be replaced because on the day that she died, her tree died. Oh, completely withered. Oh, and so, yeah. And so they had to uh, replant it. It's a true story. Wow. I mean, I was there. I was right there. What's that? Where was that? At the Garden of the Gentiles in Israel, where the, the Gentiles that have helped Israel throughout their times of trial and trouble, they plant a tree for them. And she's obviously a person that helped the Jews in a great way. And they had a tree honoring her that was from the early trees that were planted. So all these trees are big, except hers. Because, it, like I said, the day that she died, it just completely withered away. So, wonderful stuff. Uh, today is the, it's not the 18th of February, that's Sunday. Today is the 15th. Okay, February 15th. How do you motivate people to build a temple? In 538 BC, the Jewish people were in Babylon as a result of God's judgment on them. One of them was a young priest named Zechariah, who was born in Babylon during the 70 years of the Jewish captivity. The then King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire overthrew Babylon and issued a proclamation to for Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. That's recorded in Ezra chapter 1. It's also at the end of uh, what comes before Ezra Chronicles. So that, anyway, it's at the end of 1, and then it begins the, the book. Anyway, so uh, Zechariah was one of the approximately 50,000 Jews who returned to Judah along with his grandfather Edo. That's in Zechariah 1.7 and in Nehemiah 12. Within two years after the Jews returned, they rebuilt the foundation of the temple. But the Samaritans and other neighboring tribes, fearing that this signaled the beginning of a powerful Jewish state, successfully stopped the construction. In 520 BC, God spoke to the Jews in Jerusalem four times through the prophet, anybody? Haggai. Yeah. Haggai, thank you. Somebody knows his Bible, encouraging them to complete the temple. And in September, the work resumed. In October and November of 520 BC, God also gave a message to Zechariah, making him now a prophet as well as a priest. The message was this, I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. After 10 years of drought, because they stopped their work on the temple, God desired to reassure the Jews after disciplining them. His reassurance was, return to me, and I will return to you. 
Then on February 15th of 520, the Lord sent another message to Zechariah. That night, Zechariah had eight visions. It was a busy night, for these were not dreams. Zechariah was wide awake when he saw them. The purpose of these visions was to motivate the Jews to rebuild the temple by revealing God's future plans for Israel. The visions spanned the ages from Zechariah's day to the millennium following the second coming of Christ when many Christians believe God will restore the kingdom to Israel. It doesn't matter what we believe, it matters what the Bible says, and the Bible says it's going to happen. So we just, we believe that the Bible says it, but we don't believe it arbitrarily. Anyway, um, Zechariah's eight visions were symbolic, depicting God's anger and judgment on the nations that afflicted Israel, as well as God's future blessing on a restored Israel. Cleansed from sin, reinstated as a priestly nation, and serving as a light to the nations under the Messiah, who will be a king priest. At the end of the eight visions, Zechariah received a final message from God who instructed him to place a crown of silver and gold on the current high priest, Joshua, which in Greek is, anybody? Yeshua. Jesus, Yeshua. Um, this was a symbol of the future Messiah who would rebuild the millennial temple of God and rule over Israel as both priest and king. With this encouraging big picture of what God was going to do for the future, the Jews completed the rebuilding of their temple in just three and one half years. We got a reflection. It says studies in industrial psychology have shown that the workers are more efficient and motivated when they understand how their work fits into the overall plan and mission of their employer. Similarly, when we understand how our role in life relates to accomplishing God's purposes, it not only motivates us, motivates us but life also makes more sense. And they quote Isaiah 42, God the Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath and life to everyone in all the world. And it is he who says, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. And you will be a light to guide all nations to me. Okay, a couple prayer requests before we get into the Bible today. Let's see here. Um, uh, Aroxy. Greek Coast Guard mom and a widow is ill. She had a colonoscopy. Oh, no. Nona and Linroy in South Korea praying for safety. Jasmine Ruth, who is our dear sister, who's probably on line right now. Hi, Ruth. She's in Trinidad, and they have uprising in the streets. I don't know if you know that. Oh, the Muslims down there are causing all kinds of trouble. Really? The U.S. military has been down there helping out. It's wow. a very dire situation. You think that would be in the news, yeah. but because it involves political correctness. Nobody's reporting on it. Uh, Jackie might have the flu now in California, along with a lot of other people, families here in the, uh, the church as well. Lori in Nebraska got thrown down last week, hurt her shoulder. She works at the YMCA sometimes at night. And uh, always uh, for our dear brother Doug and Doe in Ireland, his wife, he's had a headache. He always has a headache. He's got uh, terrible problems. And uh, then we have Nick, who's in California, still doesn't have a doctor appointment to have surgery. I won't say what the comment was after that, something about Obamacare, but I won't go beyond that. Uh -huh. The uh, teen daughter in a mental hospital after a suicide attempt, uh -huh. somebody that attends this church online, and uh, he's been struggling with this, so we need to keep him in prayer. Another daughter, Carrie, falling into worldly pit, but at least is crying out to her parents. And so we have those, and then I have uh, two quick announcements. Uh, Doug, who I just mentioned in Ireland, he uh, 
He uh, is the guy that does every single week, he paints a painting for our sermons. He does, and he shows me the progression of them, which I put onto the videos each week. And uh, then that is for the uh, church, he does that, and that becomes the presentation for YouTube. When you click on a YouTube sermon, it is his work. So he does that, and guess what? Tomorrow is his 10th wedding anniversary, so I want to wish uh, both Doug and Doreen a, a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, happy anniversary, and uh, thank him personally for all the work he does. And uh, then we also have one other uh, person who I can't say any more than just her name, Deb. And uh, she is retiring tomorrow. I can't say what she's retiring from. Um, it's uh, somebody that has a job which is we just can't discuss. But anyway, she's retiring tomorrow. And so I would just want to send congratulations after uh, her many years of work for, uh, for uh, I'll just keep my mouth shut because I'll end up saying it. And then uh, anyway, Heavenly Father, we come to you in uh, prayer for these requests that have been lifted up and so many others which have been sent over the week. The list is very long. Uh, we've got all kinds of illnesses and it, it, the list is just immense this week, Lord. So we want to lift up everybody that's having troubles, wh whatever they may be, that you would be with them, guide them through the troubles, help them in their uh, difficulties. And certainly we pray for Trinidad with its own troubles down there, for South Africa with the, the dire situation of no water. And uh, just one thing after another, Lord, you know each and everything that we have on our minds right now. So search us out and uh, just be with your people. Give them the assurance and the reassurance that you are there with them and that you are their hiding place and their, their place of refuge during these times. And we can call out to you and you will protect us. Thank you for the chance to meet here today. Thank you for your precious word that... Uh, it's just such a treasure. It is such a treasure to be in your word. And we uh, just ask that you would guide us, help us to handle it carefully, and that each person here would be responsible enough to go home and check out what they learned today, to not make a squiggle in their brain until they are sure that what they've heard is correct. And we would certainly pray that you would be glorified and exalted through this class. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 928. You're here just on time. If you can, if you can find it, you can read it. Yeah, he, did, Jim just showed up from. Uh, we did the psalm already. We did the psalm already. So we're in nine twenty-eight. Romans nine twenty-eight. You've got three seconds to find it, or we're going to have to get it. No, I'm kidding. No, he's got it right there. I want to do it. Go ahead, go. Just kidding. Oh come on. For the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth with speed and finality that's it yep. okay this one for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness but because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth yes and that it does note there and the, always read the footnotes. footnotes forget the commentaries read the footnotes footnote says and you which is the Alexandrian text reads for the Lord will finish his work and cut it short upon the earth so uh uh, the Byzantine has a little bit more information in there. I'm not here tonight to dispute which one is correct, although I would always favor the Byzantine uh, if possible. And uh, we'll just leave it at that for now. But it's funny. Two people asked the exact same question this week about exactly that issue. Source text and, uh, you know, certain verses that aren't in uh, one text or that are in another one within a day. So the second guy got gypped. I said, I'm not retyping this. I just cut and paste the other email and sent him that answer. Same question within two days because people are actually searching out and wanting to know why 
the word is the way it is, mm -hmm. and if there's any error, and how can we know, and so I sent them all that information. And something we've talked about in classes many times, but eventually we'll do that again. So um, the, the essence of it isn't... The essence hasn't changed. And there's, this is one thing I will say, because seeing as how you brought that up, there is no point of doctrine missing in any of these texts. There's no point of doctrine missing. We don't have uh, an unreliable word. If there is a difference between this text and this text, that can be resolved. That's no problem. Don't worry about it. Like I said, I can. we can go through that sometime. We can talk about that in depth. We're in Romans now. We're not going to, but there's no point of doctrine missing in the Bible. Even some verses that are very precise and we want to have them or not have them in the Bible for uh, the uh, establishment of you know what we would consider the correct authorized copy of the Bible, it doesn't change doctrine. There's nothing like the Trinity lacking, the deity of Christ, or any of that. Major points of doctrine are all perfectly identifiable in these. And uh, I am not a, a one version only person. You obviously know that if you're clicking on and you are, you've probably got the wrong class because th that is very unscholarly. It is lacking scholarship saying one version of the Bible is better than all the others. The people that hold to the Greek translation of the Old Testament the Septuagint say that that's the only one you should use. And then you get the people that say only the Masoretic text is the inspired word of God. And then the very people that say that will defer to other Hebrew texts when they get to Psalm 22 or to Isaiah 53, because they obviously have left something out of the Masoretic text. This is a great work of scholarship. Like I say, we won't get into it any further than that, but we have a sure word. The Lord has protected his word by giving us multitudes of documents. If there was only one, we could say, well, I have control over that. I now am the authority over God's word, which is what the Catholic Church would do if they had the originals, right? So God is infinitely wise. He's got copies here. He's got copies here. He's got copies here. And if there's little differences in them, we can tell which is correct. There is no doubt. So don't, don't, don't lose heart over people making claims that the Bible is unreliable. Absolutely untrue. Romans 9.28 is a quote from Isaiah 10, verse 23. However, Paul cites the Greek translation of the verse, okay? So, right there, we have Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Most of the citations in the New Testament, when Jesus is quoted or when one of the apostles quotes scripture, uses which copy of the Old Testament when they cite normally? Greek. Absolutely, the Greek. They go to the Septuagint. Not always. There are times that the Hebrew is referred to. And there are differences. Obviously, anytime you trans, if I gave you a, if everybody here spoke German, and if I was to give you a 20 sentence, very short little thing to translate, not the Bible, I'm just talking about just something basic, and I was to give it to 20 different people here, and you all translated it according to your perfect knowledge of German and brought it up to me, all 20 would be different. There would not be one that was the same, okay? It is, it, it is so unscholarly to say that one translation of the Bible is the only translation, especially when, I, I won't get into that now. Anyway, he's translating from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew does read a bit differently, but the general sense of the passage comes through either way. It needs to be remembered that this verse here is speaking of Israel. Go ahead and read it. I'm going to read it again because yours is a bit shorter. I want to make sure that we have the... In, the entire thought, which I believe is correct there. 9.28, for he will finish the work uh, and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And that was actually depending on the previous verse where it says, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. So he's talking about cutting out the people of Israel. 
there's going to be a remnant. He will always save Israel, but he's going to do his work and he's going to do it in short order. Now, okay, he's speaking of Israel, just as the previous one is. The distinction between Israel and the church here is completely and consistently clear. He is not referring to the church, okay? There's not an overlapping of the two, nor does Paul ever, Paul never attempts to demonstrate that Israel transitions into the church where one replaces the other. We have to get that right. I don't, I, I cannot understand how a replacement theologian can come here and they can read that and say, oh, that's speaking of the church. He's very clear, it's Israel, he's speaking about the church, he makes the difference between the two of them, and all of a sudden they say, well, the church has replaced Israel, completely ignoring that the apostle is never making that connection. Israel is Israel. When he says the Israel of God in Galatians uh, 6, peace be upon the Israel of God, he's speaking of Israel, he's not speaking of the church. Well, who is the Israel of God, according to Paul? It's the believers in Christ who are from Israel. That's it. And there was only a few of them. It doesn't matter at that time if there were 30 or 40,000, however many there were. There weren't a great number in comparison to the number of people of Israel, but that is who he is speaking of. He's writing to the Gentiles, and he's saying, peace be upon the Israel of God. Don't shut out your brothers, right? Okay. So he never ever says one is the other. We are grafted in to the, uh, the commonwealth of Israel. We are not Israel. Israel is Israel. Okay. So the previous verse, speaking of Israel, who are as the sand of the sea, will be so depleted in number that only the remnant will be saved, a small portion of them, okay? The way this will occur is spoken of now in this verse that we're looking at. It will be accomplished by the Lord who will finish the work. The Lord is the one. Remember, well, we're not there yet, are we? We're still in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Leviticus 25 is what we're going to be doing this week, this Sunday. The Sabbath of the land. Great stuff. Okay. Well, we're going to get into Leviticus chapter 26. I think this is going to be four sermons in chapter 25. We've got this, and then we've got three on the Jubilee. That's correct. So we have four sermons, and that, so that means in five weeks, we're going to get into Leviticus 26. <coughs> Horrifying. The first seven or eight verses are how I'm going to bless you if you pay attention, right? If you do the things of the law, I'm going to bless you like no nation on earth has ever been blessed absolutely wonderful stuff. And then for the rest of the chapter, almost, it speaks about what he's going to do if they don't listen. And it is in the first person. I will do this and I will do that. I will do that. Israel has nobody to blame on this planet for what has happened to them except themselves. Now, once again, I said this last week so people don't panic. When Nebuchadnezzar went down, he was the rod of judgment against Israel. Then it says you went too far, and, or maybe it was the Assyrian, uh, uh, Sennacherib, one of them. He, either Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar, they went down and they, they took out their vengeance on Israel, and he said, you went too far. And so now I'm going to judge you for what you've done. Okay, And we can make the same uh, parallel with what happened with Hitler. Right? They got what they deserved throughout these 2,000 years. They have disobeyed the Lord. They are being punished, and that is seven times over from the first punishment. We've gone through that before. They're being punished for well over 2,000 years, and uh, or right at 2,000 years now. But anyway, we'll get into 2,520 years total is where it is. But anyway, at the end of it, Hitler took things too far. And we could use the exact same thought of the destruction that, that uh, the king of old did to them. The Lord didn't like it, and he judged them. Okay, Don't want to take that too far, but Israel, what they have gotten over the past 2,000 years has been a self 
self-inflicted wound. And I'm going to repeat that during that sermon. There is no doubt about it. He is very clear when he lays out what he is going to do to them. Okay, so what is it that they did in order to merit this punishment that Paul is now speaking of? Idolatry. Not listening to his word. Okay, but specifically, because the first time it was idolatry and all of the other things, and they got exiled, but the second time, there has to be a reason. Okay? Rejected. Yeah, that's right. They rejected Christ. Okay, that's the main reason, is yeah. that they reject. He has now demonstrated to them the fulfillment of all of his word. Everything that he promised, everything that he said would occur, occurred in that person when he came and walked among them. Every one of the feasts of the Lord is perfectly fulfilled in him. If you didn't see those Feasts of the Lord sermons, I'm talking to the people on YouTube, go watch them. They are done. They are completely fulfilled in their entirety, word by word, picturing what Christ would do, fulfilled. And it should have been obvious to them. They're the stewards of the law, right? Uh, uh, John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Well, they are what speaks of me. They do have eternal life if they go through him because he is eternal life, right? They didn't. So this is what Paul is writing about now. It is not the church. It is Israel. Okay, he is going to cut his work short in righteousness. This will surely come to pass, and it will come to pass speedily. Cut the, <coughs> excuse me. Cutting something short means that what one might originally perceive as a lengthy process will suddenly and exactingly come about. The perfectly just, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, reason for this swift action is because it is done, as it says in that verse, in righteousness. What God does is always perfectly just, including the execution of his judgment. God doesn't arbitrarily or vindictively judge anything or anyone, ever. He is perfectly just. And I've said this in a couple sermons, and we're going to see it again. Um, we saw it last week. We're going to see it again several times. We have an instance last week of somebody violating the law, right? They came in, and they blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed, it says. Okay, actually, they blasphemed the name. I'm not going to get into it, but they blasphemed the name and cursed. Okay, if the Lord did not judge that person, that person, when they knew that he had done that, and then he judged somebody later, what would that be? That would be, it would be hypocrisy. It would be vindictive, it would be unjust, okay? Because the first person, the first transgressor of that action was passed over. So he's arbitrary, he's vindictive, right? But if he judges the first person who does something wrong, and then he lets the next person go, that is not arbitrary or unjust, it's merciful. He is demonstrating mercy, and that is his perfect right to do that, okay? He can say, I am demonstrating mercy on David for this reason, right? Your sin has been taken away. He looked on David's heart, he knew that David was repentant, and blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, how does that happen? Is it arbitrary? No. He has already shown that this is what is deserved, and now he can demonstrate mercy, okay? So, once again, God is perfectly just. He is perfectly fair in every single thing that he does, and we cannot look at him and say, that is wrong, what you have done, all right? And as an explanation of why this is so, we are given in the second half of the verse, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. From Isaiah's perspective, the Lord in this verse is who? Jesus. No, 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 no. Isaiah's perspective. Oh. It would be the Lord Jehovah, right? Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever you, whatever term. We don't know the true name of the Lord. People can say, well, we know for certain it was Yahweh. We don't know that for certain. We have no idea. 
they have been debating the divine name for eons. Okay, the reason why I say Jehovah is because that is what James Strong determined it was, and it's probably the closest. It, you know, for uh, hundreds of years they have said Jehovah because we use the uh, Anglican or, you know, the, not the Anglican, the Occident, uh, what's the word for English? Um, we'll just say the English J. Okay. Oh, let me go through that really quickly. I've done this before, but just so people understand why we say Jesus and not Yeshua. His name in Hebrew was Yeshua. Everybody got that, right? That, that is his divine name, or that is his given name, means salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he was given the name Yeshua. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament name, Yahushua. The Lord is salvation. That's Joshua's name, Yahushua. He was a picture of the coming Christ, but Jesus was given the name, not Yahushua, the Lord is salvation. He was given the name Yeshua, or salvation implying that the Lord is salvation. Do you see that? It dropped off the yoke. Okay, so Yahushua becomes Yeshua. He is Yeshua. And then from there we have the name go into the Greek, which is Isus, I-E-S-O-U-S, Isus, okay? Because that's just a transliteration of it. We don't directly transliterate things. We, do, we transliterate things into a language so that we can pronounce them properly. The Greeks wouldn't have said Yeshua. They would have said Isus. Okay, so we have that. And then after that, it goes up into the Germanic languages, and they would say, um, Isus, again, they would say, uh, the German J, like Johannes Kepler, is not pronounced, right? It's an I. So we have Isus. And then from there, it goes to England, and they pronounce the J, and so it becomes Jesus. That's why we have a J. It's no conspiracy. It's not the devil working and blah, blah, blah. People get so crazy about these things. Literally, you wouldn't believe some of the emails I get about the divine name and Jesus' name and we should call him this. It's crazy. You know, one, one uh, I won't get into it. Take all day and it's a diversion. But just use sound thinking when you look at languages. Language, you know what? And I listen to Egyptian hymns all day long, actually modern Egyptian songs, yeah, not hymns, but they, you know, uh, singing, like we sing, um, uh, what's his name, Um, uh, uh, David Crowder, right, we sing David Crowder in the church, you know, well, they have modern music like that, but it's in Egyptian, and I listen to it all day long, right, and so, um, what is the name of God in Egypt, and I'm talking about Christian God, Allah, that's, that's the word that they have. It's an Arabic, Arabic name. God in Arabic is Allah. If you go to Indonesia, the Christians there call God Allah because that's what their language does. It's not Allah of the Quran. It is Allah, the name of God. So when somebody speaks about, well, think of it this way. When somebody speaks of a false God, they call him God, right? Small G. So, yeah, well, we put a small G on there, but it's the same word. That's their God, 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 because that's the English language. In the the Indonesian, in the Malaysian languages, in the Arabic languages, all of them, when they worship God, they say Allah. And then, of course, when they're singing their song, they say, well, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Allah is with us, right? Because that's their language, all right? That is how they say God. There's no conspiracy there. That's just the word that they use. So, Would that playing loud somewhere on a parking lot? Uh, well, you know what, people, if they came into my house and they, if they came into the house and they heard me listening to one of my songs, they might think, what, what are you listening to, right? But these are Christians. They sing wonderful Christian songs, and I'm learning Egyptian while singing them because what they do is they take the Egyptian and Arabic, 
and then they take the Egyptian transliteration, and then they have the English translation. And it's surprising how close the Egyptian is to the Hebrew. It, um, I can't. I'd have to sing it anyway. Um, but you know, the, the, the word "I" in "I" in Hebrew is very close to the word "I" in Egyptian. And the word like the way you are the way it's very similar. When they say "king," it's very similar. So it's much easier to learn than I thought. Anyway, but yeah, yeah. I mean, these words are they're they're almost identical. They're just pronounced differently. It would be like somebody from here and somebody in Kentucky. But they're very, very similar words. And so it's not as difficult learning this as I thought, and I'm enjoying it. So I, I play Egyptian hymn, not hymns, modern music all day long. And a lot of other stuff too. I mean, whatever comes up on my mix. But the point is that not to worry about these, these uses of Jesus or, you know, when Wycliffe goes into a country and they translate a Bible into the native language. If the word for God is Allah, that's what they use. But of course, Christians that don't know anything go when they say, well, they're, they're, they're promoting, yeah, and they're not. They're using the language that the people speak. So we have to be careful to understand what we're talking about before we condemn somebody because Wycliffe Bible Translators actually is doing a great deal of work. They are all over the world. They're doing the very best that they can. They did get into a little bit of a, uh, a problem by, uh, and I don't know if this is true, it's commentary I read that they had changed that Jesus is the Son of God to something because you know they didn't want to offend somebody. I don't know if that was a true article or not, but I found no proof of it beyond that article. People just like to make stuff up to diminish other people for absolutely no reason at all. Let's get back to this. Um, the Lord in this verse is referring to, as I said, Jehovah or Yehovah. He is the covenant-keeping God who bestows the blessings and executes the curses upon the covenant people. This was Isaiah writing these words, and he's thinking this is what the Lord is going to do. The list of blessings and curses is detailed, oh, I right here, Leviticus 26, which we're going to be in in five more sermons, and in one other passage, it's in Deuteronomy chapter... 28, very good. Somebody knows his Bible. When the people, I'm, everybody here knows their Bible. It's not everybody can remember everything. I understand that, and I've got my notes, so I'm cheating. But uh, I would remember that, though. But um, when the uh, people adhered to the covenant's precepts, the blessings were lavished upon them, as I said a minute ago. Let's go there really quickly. I'm just going to read you this so you know what I'm talking about, just in case you decide you're not going to watch those wonderful Leviticus 26 sermons. What are you turning to? Uh, uh, 26. Leviticus 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves. Uh, okay, he gives three commands in the first two verses, and then he says in verse 3, If you will walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and vintage shall last till the time of sowing. In other words, there will always be food coming in. There, it will, the, the land will continue to bless you throughout the entire cycle of the year. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give you peace the land, uh, in the land, and you shall lie down, and none of you will make none of you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts. And guess what? Evil beasts there does not just mean lions and tigers. It is speaking of people as well. Evil beasts. All the way through the Bible, beasts are equated to people, like what the, you know the uh, people around the cross. You know these beasts and these bulls of Bashan and all this. Anyway, um, so 
Uh, it's a play on words. It means both beasts, literally, and beasts, humans. And the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to, to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. And he continues down to verse 13. All these blessings, and then when you get to 14, but if you do not obey me, and the bad news starts, and it goes on and it gone. Verse 27, then after this, if you do not obey me, obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And he says, and I, even I will chastise you seven times over for your sins. And he goes on and he just tells him the miserable, horrible things that are going to come upon them. And guess what? It is a self-inflicted wound that they have suffered. It's not to pick on the Jews, but they agreed to this with their own mouths in the book of Leviticus. We will hear and we will obey. They committed to themselves whatever he says, we will obey. Okay, and so they they were judged because of their misdeeds. The Lord was using them as a picture of the entire world getting its just due. And then he gave them Jesus and he gave them a release from that law, right? And they didn't accept it. And so they're suffering under the punishments of that law as a collective group of people. Israel is a collective group. Individuals that come to Christ do not stop being Jews. Right? That's just the way it is. They're all a collective group of people. Some of them will be saved, some of them will not. Okay, going on. So we have these um, verses in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy is Moses giving to them the same commands, but he is giving it to them in the third person. The Lord will. The Lord will. Okay, he will do this to you. It's first person in... Uh, is that second or third? The Lord will. It is third. Anyway, um, so uh, because you would be second person. Okay, I just want to make sure I got that right. Anyway, so um, the list of blessings and curses, I just read you some of them. When the people adhered to the covenant precepts, the blessings were lavished upon them. However, when disobedient, the curses would come. And yet, as a continued grace, even in times of disobedience, the promise of a protected remnant remained. That's found in Leviticus 26 as well. So let me take you back there really quickly. And he, he said it with his mouth, it must be true or it is not the God of the Bible. And it is the God of the Bible. He is faithful. And he says there in verse 44, yet for all that, for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. He made the promise. He said it with his lips. He is speaking of this group of people, not the church. He is speaking of this group of people. We were never Israel. Israel's Israel, and he promised with his own mouth, I will not destroy them completely. They're going to get what they deserve, but I will protect them as a people, and there will always be a remnant because guess what? Jesus isn't returning to the church. He's returning to Israel. He's coming for the church, and we're going to be taken out of here, but he's not coming to the earth to do it. He's going to meet us where? In the air. That's right, halfway. It's going to be between the two. So great stuff there. He is coming back to this earth, and he will come back to his people. Did Jesus stop being a Jew when he left? No. He is a man. As sure as we, you and I are male and female here, he, that will never change. And he will always be of the lineage of the people that he came from. That will never change. He didn't suddenly become a Gentile when he ascended. Okay? But that's what so many people seem to think. It's just, I don't understand it. Anyway, 
Outside of this remnant, though, that I just read you, 2644, there would only be judgment by the hand of the Lord. He promised to make a short work upon the earth. This short work is the execution of the decree. And that's the decree of Leviticus 26. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it goes on for, I, I gotta tell you, when I was typing those sermons, I think it's two or three sermons, I was miserable. I mean, I'm reading all this judgment and I'm thinking about what's happened to these people. And I don't know how you could sit there and read that and really do a study on the words and what he's going to do and not be moved. I mean, I, I just don't know. I, it, it, this is the group of people that he selected. He promised to protect them. He promised to give them every blessing that you could possibly imagine. The earth is going to sprout forth. You're going to be protected. You're going to be safe. You're going to be secure. Everything that you want on this planet is going to be yours. And if you don't listen, you're going to get this. It's your choice, guys. I just, I, I, the whole thing is just, it's very distressing. One, that they didn't listen, and two, that he had to act because he spoke. The, the whole thing is just, it's bad all the way around. Thank God that Jesus came and gave us a new covenant where we don't have to live under that any longer. The short work is the execution upon of the decree, thus showing his adherence to the covenant that they rejected. Finally, upon the earth is not speaking of the entire earth, but rather the land of Israel. The term in Hebrew is ha'eretz, the land, it's speaking of Israel. It's not the word tebel, which is world or anything like that. This is, term is commonly used throughout the Old Testament when speaking of Canaan alone. It does speak of other things too. I mean, the earth can be the soil from the earth and all this different type of stuff, but he's speaking of the land of Israel. It's used throughout the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament speaking of Canaan. Even in the New Testament, the sediment is found. An example of this was Jesus speaking to the people of Israel in Matthew 5, verse 5, which is the very first Bible verse that I ever learned, and I it, it became my favorite just because it's the only one that I knew at the time. It's because mom had it on the uh, refrigerator when we were growing up. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I just, you know, that's it. So anyway, he's speaking of the land of Israel. He wasn't speaking of the entire earth. He's not speaking about the Gentiles there. He was speaking to Israel still under the law, okay? that When people read the three synoptic gospels, they must make the distinction between one dispensation and another. The Gentiles were never spoken to by Jesus. Right? Unless they came to him and asked for something, he'd say, go away, I'm here to speak to the house of Israel. Right? He was always ministering to Israel because that's what his mission was. He was coming to fulfill the law for them. When they rejected him, then the word could go out to the world. If Jesus had done his ministry and all of Israel opened their arms and said, we accept you, the millennial reign of Christ would have began right then, and there would have been no Gentile-led church age, and we all would have been subservient to the Jews throughout the earth, never getting the chance of the salvation that we have in Christ. It would have been a completely different thing. Obviously, God knew that wouldn't work because he even said it in the Old Testament books of like Isaiah, where he says, you know, I'm going to make you a light unto the Gentiles. So there's no doubt that God knew in advance that there would be a Gentile-led church age, and he also knew that his people would be under punishment. But when Jesus speaks in the Gospels, parables, beatitudes, all of the other things that he is saying, he is not saying it to the church. When people get that right, we will have almost 
almost no bad doctrine left in Christianity. Uh, but that is one of the major problems with Christianity, and I'm talking about doctrine-wise, is when people incorrectly apply verses that don't belong to them to themselves, or they say that Jesus said this, and so I need to apply that to my life. Absolutely wrong. <coughs> Get the dispensations right, and then from there, y your theology will be so much better. The one that I always like to use is when Jesus says, pray that you may, may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. And people say, well, I, I hope I'm worthy. You're a Christian. He's already been crucified. He's died for your sins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that God is in Christ, not imputing sins to us, right? Well, if that's the case, then obviously we're worthy, not because of inherent worthiness, but because of the work of Christ. So we don't have to pray to, to, that we should stand worthy before the Lord. We don't have to pray that because we are worthy because he's done the work for us. Howdy, Doug. How you doing there? So I hope everybody will always remember that distinction. The words of Jesus in the three synoptic gospels always are to be separated. Yes. I have one question. Um, that's the way we as Christians who receive the Lord, you know, we have the new covenant. But right. for all those who haven't, this, this they'll be judged still, by the law. This is God's really standard. still the government and the standards. Absolutely. The, but it'll be what they're judged by, but they're not under the law. Now remember that right. because the law was given to Israel, it wasn't given to the Gentiles, and the dispensation of government goes all the way across. It's still in effect. The Chinese have their own government. All of these people have their own government. But the law is the standard by which they will be judged. They're not under the law, but God must have a standard to judge the people of the world, and that is the standard. He's given it to Israel. This is the, what Israel will be judged by, and this is showing God's righteousness, his righteous standard. The world can look to Israel and say, that's what we deserve. And if they want to reject Christ, then that's what they're going to get. Right, but that's that's what. Let me read you the verse that I was just uh, referring to because I want everybody to understand this. We don't have to pray that we will be counted worthy to stand before the Son of Man. We go? don't take what's that? Where are you going? I'm going to two Corinthians chapter five, and I'm going to read starting in verse eighteen. Now all things are of God. Okay, this is a perfect eternal salvation verse. By the way, if you want to debate somebody about eternal salvation, which we had a big one last week on Charlie Messi's post. Um, if you want to debate eternal salvation, then you have to ask somebody that says you're not eternally saved. Well, then what does this mean here? Right. It says, yeah, it says um, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. So it's a done deal, but maybe you can blow it. He says um, through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The apostles were given this ministry. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And here it comes not imputing their trespasses, meaning their sins, to them. Well, if you lose your salvation through sin, right? Everybody understand that? The wages of sin is yeah. death. And that's not speaking of human death or physical death. That is speaking of spiritual disconnect from God. If the wages of sin is death, and God isn't imputing to you sin, guess what? Eternal salvation. I don't know how somebody could read that verse and come to any other conclusion. God is not imputing sins to us. Right there, trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So if God is not imputing sin to the people that believe in him, if that's the case, and the Bible says that that is true, and it says it elsewhere in Romans as well, Romans 14, some of these things, we are not under law, but we are under grace and all these other things. But if God is not imputing sin to man, then you can't die. You cannot lose your salvation, and it doesn't matter what you do. 
sin is not imputed. But you will stand before the Lord and you will receive judgment. Bema seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 once again, for what? Rewards and losses. You will never lose your salvation. It is the poorest handling of scripture that I can think of for somebody to say, I might lose my salvation. I can't, I can't even imagine that train of thought. I cannot imagine it. If Christ died to give us eternal insecurity, then that wasn't a very good deal, either for him or for us. He went to the cross and died so that he could provide eternal insecurity for us? Absolutely not. Okay, that's just one of many verses you can use for eternal salvation, but it is a great one. God is reconciling the world to himself, not imputing trespasses. Well, if he's not imputing trespasses, then there can be no death again. It's done. Okay, so let's go on. Um, where was I here? Oh, yeah, he's uh, speaking of the earth. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, shall, for they shall inherit the earth. He's speaking of the Jews. He's speaking of the land of Israel. He's not speaking to the church at all. Life application. Okay, and uh, the bridges have to leave at 6 o'clock, just so you all know that. And uh, so when they leave, I told them to make sure that they stand up and say, I can't take it anymore. Run out. Okay, um, life application. God has been faithful to his covenant people, Israel. Despite all of the bad that's happened to them, he has been faithful. He said what they would get, and he also said that I will not break my covenant with them. That is all there is to it. He is not going to break his covenant with Israel ever. Okay, so even in their judgment, his faithfulness is seen. If he failed to meet the promises of his covenant, including those detailing judgment, he would not be a proper steward of that covenant. The very act of judgment demonstrates his grace. Left to themselves and without his covenant care, they would have been completely consumed by the surrounding nations or by their own hand. His judgment, though strict, has actually preserved them, to preserve them as a people. If this is so with Israel, it is also true with you. He has made a covenant to keep you forever. Just as Israel is kept forever, you as an individual are kept forever, okay? Understand that when you receive God's chastisement, it is because you belong to him. And that's Hebrews chapter 12, seven and eight, right? Do you know it offhand? No, okay, let me go there really quickly. Hebrews 12, seven. I know you could probably get 90% of it, but all right, here we go. Hebrews 12, 7 and 8. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Verse 8. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So when we get chastened for doing wrong, it's because the Lord loves us. And he's trying to correct us, just as he did with Israel. It was a little sterner for the nation of Israel, but it was also a greater promise that they had made with their own lips. I am going to do this. We will hear and we will obey. Na'ase venishma. So, um, 9.29. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Okay, in this one, they actually translate the word, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, which means the Lord of hosts. Okay, Sabaoth is the hosts, and so they translate it as almighty. Right. Once again, what do we call that? Error? Yeah. No, we call it translator's right. preference. Thank you. Very, very good. Translator's preference. They don't have to say Sabaoth. Most people have no idea what that word means. So why would you leave it there? I don't know why the New King James Version did that, but it's fine. It means that somebody actually has to say, well, what does that mean? And they have to go look it up, right? If they're studious. If not, then they just say, oh, it must be his name, Sabaoth. Okay. Anyway, it means the Lord of hosts. 
Okay, so that's translator's preference. You could say satellite, you could say hosts, you could say almighty. All right, it's giving the same idea because the hosts are under him, which means that he is above the hosts, right? So translator's preference. Um, again, Paul cites scripture to support the argument he is making. In verse 27, he showed that because of Israel's disobedience, only a remnant would be saved. This was promised in the law at the time of Moses in the blessings and curses. It is noted elsewhere in scripture, both as future prophecies and as prophecies fulfilled, such as in the recorded names and numbers of the returning exiles in Ezra and Nehemiah. You wonder why those genealogical lists are there in detail, how many people and the son of, the son of, the son of. Okay, it's noted there. The prophecies here, the prophecies are fulfilled. He's saying, I'm gonna bring these people back and they record everything there. It's, it's very well documented. Two exiles were prophesied for Israel. The Babylonian one came about prior to Paul's time. The Roman one would occur in the year AD 70. Yes, at the hands of the Romans. Paul knew it was coming on the nation because of their rejection of Christ. And so to show that God's workings were anticipated and deserved, he quotes Isaiah 1 verse 9. Paul knew it was coming. He absolutely knew it by this point. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. Something big is coming. And at that, Isaiah 1 9. And as Isaiah said before, he's quoting scripture. He's twice quoted out Isaiah, and he turns again right to the beginning of this prophet's book to highlight that this was not just expected, but that it was a note of highlight. Right at the beginning of the book, yes. Two exiles. Yeah. First exile, Israel went into Syria. Okay. They, they took them. But the, the second one, they went to Babylon. Right. Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Right. So why do we call it two? Well, it, it depends. If you call the separate, the ten tribes being exiled and exile that counts for the whole, then you would do that. But it wasn't for the whole. No, it wasn't. It was okay, it was it was ten tribes, and it wasn't all of the ten tribes. There are no lost ten tribes. This is one of my one of the things that really upsets me is when people mishandle the ten tribes of Israel. There are all kinds of groups out there that the poor, the really poor, and Ezra was one of the really poor. He was in the last land of right, right. Okay, but I'm talking about the ten tribes of Israel. I'm not talking about Babylon. Yeah. The ten tribes of Israel. There are people out there that speak about them being the lost oh, tribes of Israel. British Israelianism, we are the 10 tribes of Israel. We migrated up here and we are that group that were exiled. And then there are people all over the world that say that's part of the 10 tribes of Israel that was exiled. There are no lost tribes of Israel. If you go after the exile of uh, by Sennacherib, king of Assyria in AD 722, he took away the 10 tribes, the people living in the, those areas of the 10 tribes. If you go after that in the Bible and you Look at all of the people that are named in tribes after that time, okay? Almost all of the tribes are mentioned. And if there's one person from a tribe, then the tribe isn't lost. That was given to us as a precedent all the way back in the book of Judges at the very end when they had only 600 people left in Benjamin, right? Still a tribe. If there's one person from that tribe, it is not a lost tribe. There are no lost tribes. There never were lost tribes. There were people that were exiled just like there were in the Babylonian captivity, there were only a few that were left, but the majority of them were exiled and gone forever. But there were no lost tribes, and everybody needs to understand that. Uh, Anna, who was in the temple, was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, right? Paul was from the tribe of 
Okay, we have priests, we have Levites, we've got people from Judah, we've got Simeon, we've got Naphtali, and go through the Old Testament after the exile and you will get all kinds of people from different tribes. There are no lost tribes, zero. If there was one person in that tribe and he had children and they continued on, then there are no lost tribes, okay? As a further support, when Paul was speaking, and when he was being questioned by Agrippa and all those people in his trials, what does he say? I'm here for the hope of our 12 tribes, right? He said it present tense. And then who does Peter write to? The 12 tribes of the, he doesn't say the two tribes of the dispersion, he says the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Again and again and again, the, Old, the New Testament confirms that there were 12 tribes. None were lost. There is no such thing as British Israelianism or these people up in uh, uh, the Church of God up in Indiana or whatever that say we're the lost tribes. Yeah, this one lady emailed me angry about one of my posts on the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, you got to get your doctrine right. There are, no, there are people that were from those tribes mm -hmm. that are still worshiping as Jews, like the Ethiopians, right? They're going to bring another, I think, thousand of them up very soon to Israel. They know that these people were part of those tribes, but they weren't lost tribes. They were just people that were scattered. Mm -hmm. There's a giant difference between being a lost tribe, meaning, well, they're Gentiles now, they're living out there, and there being people that were scattered that kept their faith. Giant difference between the two. That's no lost Armstrong tribes. Is. What? Armstrong is. Yeah, Armstrong. Yeah, there you go. That's all that crazy stuff. Herbert, Herbert Armstrong. Herbert Armstrong. Just crazy stuff that people come up with. They, they make stuff up. They get people believing very strange doctrines, and then they get them into, begins with B, ends with bondage. Bondage, that's right. He's, they're in a cult, and he's got bondage over them. All right? That, it, Revelation yes. 7 clearly tells you. There's, absolutely. All of the tribes are listed right there in Revelation 7. But if you're a Jehovah's Witness, they say that's us. And then you ask them, well, what tribe are you? Right? Well, I don't know. Well, guess what? God does, and you ain't it. Right? Absolutely. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, Paul is pointing to Scripture. He, um, in verse 27, he showed that because of Israel's disobedience, a remnant would be saved. It was promised at the, oh, I said that, um, uh, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, so two exiles were promised, and then uh, AD 70. Paul knew it was coming, and then he quoted Isaiah, as I, Isaiah said before, right? And that's at the beginning of the prophet's book to highlight that this wasn't expected, but it was a note of highlight. Okay, instead he begins with their disobedience and prophesied destruction. That's what Isaiah did. He be, almost began his, his book with that. He said, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, the Lord is Jehovah. It's not Jesus yet because he hasn't come yet. Isaiah is writing about the Lord Jehovah. Sabaoth is often translated as hosts. Thus, unless Jehovah of hosts is the idea that we're to understand here or the Lord Almighty. As noted in 928, Jehovah is the covenant-keeping God who bestows the blessings and executes the curses upon the people. Hosts is a military-type term used of an organized army, right? We think of the hosts of Israel. We think of the hosts of, uh, you know, the U.S., military. That would be our organized army. Well, the Lord has a set of hosts in heaven, the heavenly host. What did Jesus say before he was crucified? If I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion is a giant number, okay? It's 10,000, some people say, whatever. It's a legion. It's a vast multitude, and you can call down 12 of them right now, all right? So, we can therefore understand this verse as, unless Jehovah of heaven's armies had left us a seed. They are there protecting 
the remnant of Israel. What is implied by using this term is that the warriors of heaven itself have come to fight against the disobedient and unruly people. God has said, go destroy them. If you uh, remember, I don't know if you've ever heard the story, it's written in Josephus, that at the destruction of the temple, there's uh, one guy that's walking around for, he's just walking around continuously, destruction is coming. I, I, I'm gonna misquote this, but this is basically what the account says. You can read it in uh, um, Josephus' work, okay? This guy, he's walking around and he's, it's coming. And then finally, they've got all these siege uh, rocks coming in continuously. People are getting wiped out and he got creamed by one of them. That's the end of him, okay? And things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. They describe what's going on. One woman actually cooked her child and ate it, okay? Oh. Things are getting very, very bad in Jerusalem, okay? And finally, there was, according to Josephus, there was a heavenly vision where the chariots and horses of the heavenly hosts shouted out, let us depart hence, and off they went. And so the city was left for the Romans to destroy. Now, whether that's true or not, he wrote it, okay? And I have no doubt that it's possible because we know that another person named Elijah was taken by a chariot right up to heaven, right? So for them to have been given that final sign, I have no problem believing that at all. I don't believe in that type of sign for us today at all in what any way shape or form if you disagree that's fine but israel is the one that gets the signs they're the ones that speaking in acts chapter 2 of uh your old man prophesying and all the things that it says who is he speaking to who is peter speaking to he's speaking to the jews gentiles don't even come in until acts chapter 10. all right he was speaking to the jews okay all of the things that we try to put into the church into it just doesn't fit and that's why theology is so bad that was another question I got several on this week, was Acts chapter 2, okay? It doesn't apply to us. It was never spoken to us. Those passages are descriptive. They only describe what happened, okay? The whole book of Acts is descriptive. There are very, very few prescriptive verses in the book of Acts, right? Very few. It's a descriptive book saying this is how the church got established, and we go to the Apostle Paul to get prescriptive doctrine for the church age. And without that, we have convoluted theology. As I said, if you take this and you take this here and you put them together, you've got contradictions. And then people have to make things up to get rid of those contradictions when they're not contradictions at all. It's not being addressed to us here. So we just put that over here and say, all scriptures God breathed, it is useful and profitable for the man of righteousness and all that. Okay, we know that, but it's not all applying at the same time in the same way. All right, something that I would say though, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are five books which I would say apply pretty much to everybody at all times. What books are they? No, not the first five. That's the, that's the Torah. That's the law. It's a lot of descriptive stuff in the law, but it's mostly the books of the law. They're called the books. Yeah, that's one of them. They're called the books of wisdom, right? You've got Psalms. You've got Proverbs. You've got the uh, Ecclesiastes. You've got uh, the Song of Solomon. You've got the book of Job. Those are five wisdom books. They apply at all times because they are wisdom. They're something that we can say, I understand what God is doing because of this. None of them are really prescriptive other than uh, the book of Proverbs has some things that are almost prescriptive. They're warnings, you know, don't do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. And you know, and he's telling us, you apply these things to your life and your life is gonna be a lot better off. Right. Ecclesiastes is like that as well. They're not commands. They're, they're not commands. They're, they're useful purposes for us to use in our life so that we live properly. 
okay? Those books are pretty much universal, but the rest of them, the, the law doesn't apply to us now, right? The things that happened before the law were a different dispensation. What Jesus said was under the law, et cetera, et cetera. The book of Acts is a transition book which is describing what God is doing going from the Jews to the Gentile. Paul, Paul is where we get our church age doctrine. And if we don't go to Paul, we're gonna be messed up. So okay? the, term, the term divide rightly. Divide rightly. Is dispensations. Uh, absolutely. It, but it's more than that. To yeah. divide rightly means to not take a verse and cut it down the middle and then say this applies to me and this doesn't. Or uh, to take, you know, divide rightly means to take God's word and to uh, properly apply it doctrinally to our lives and to teach it properly. And so uh, it, it, it's something that we have to be careful with. But um, dividing rightly is something that is very, very important. And everybody, I, I will say this right now, so that everybody will look at the Bible a little differently. And you're going to get people that will argue, even people that are on the same page with all of their major doctrine, they're going to have things they disagree on. It's just going to happen. But dividing rightly is a hugely important thing. It, it's very important. Um, let's see here. So we got the, the term hosts and uh, what's implied is this term. Oh, yeah, I said that. Okay. And um, okay. They were to execute their duties. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, the uh, heavenly hosts who I was speaking of, and their instructions were for destruction. Get Israel, they have disobeyed, it's time to destroy them, okay? They were to execute their duties with full determination of purpose, with the exception of a seed, as Paul says there, with the exception of a seed, leaving, but a seed is synonymous with sparing a remnant. A seed by itself, when watered, will again grow into a multitude. Okay, so everybody understand he's going to preserve a seed, and that seed will again someday be planted, it will sprout, it will blossom, and it will become a multitude. And that's actually happening in our lifetime with sure. the Jews that are becoming Christians, or I shouldn't say Christians, they're becoming completed Jews. They're Messianic believers who have called on their Lord, okay? So a seed is watered. When it's watered, it'll grow again into a multitude. Here then is a picture of the righteous remnant saved by the Lord of hosts for the unveiling of his glorious future plans for Israel. Okay, it's not speaking of the church. It is speaking of Israel. They're going to be destroyed, and then there's going to be a seed that is left, which will again sprout into a multitude. That is the, are you okay? You're really sneezing back there. I know, I just wanna know if you're okay. Um, but if this seed had not been spared, as Isaiah says, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah, complete destruction, okay? Isaiah foresaw this. He foresaw what was coming on Israel, and he said a seed, a remnant will be saved. The Bible's noted example of wickedness leading to destruction is Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the flood of Noah itself, there were but a few survivors. In the case of the flood, only how many survived through the flood? Eight, eight in total, okay? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their Three wives, so that's eight people, okay? Eight in the Bible always signifies new beginnings. Anytime you see the number eight, you know that it is giving you a hint of something new beginning. Okay, you've got the seven days of the week, and then you've got the first day of the week, which is the eighth day. It's a new beginning. You're starting again. Jesus' name in Greek, Isos Christos, right? Take the gematria, and what does it come out to? Eight, eight, eight. It's just what it is. It's an astonishing thing. But uh, when you look at, you know, and some people say gematria is hocus pocus. It's not. The Hebrew letter Aleph is the number one, right? 
the Hebrew letter Tav is the number 22. Okay, but it is the ordinal number 400. It is a system of numbers which has been known for eons. The Greeks did the same thing with their language. As a matter of fact, they used to make plays on their names in the Greek, in the numbers, and that is inscribed actually in ancient inscriptions of people that were, this guy is in love with this girl, and they'd make a play on their names in the Greek gematria. It is a system they used, and therefore it is valid. And when you come to Jesus' name and you translate it from Jesus Christ in Greek into numbers, it comes out to 888, the new beginning of all new beginnings, okay? It's just great. The Bible is full of all kinds of wonderful little things. Um, eight people on the uh, flood of Noah, and uh, in the case of the flood, eight survived out of a world full of people. In Sodom, only Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were spared, but even Lot's wife was lost when she turned back towards the destruction. Paul is using examples of temporal destruction at God's hand to show that he is truly angry at sin. He's really angry at it. We have to remember that he's truly angry at sin and that the disobedient will be cast off. We can't shrug off God's judgment and say, oh, it doesn't matter, he's gonna forgive me, which is, you know, this morning I was at 7-Eleven, okay? And this guy taking out the garbage, on one garbage can on the side of the building and this kid pulls up on a motorbike, bing, 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 and he says, uh, you know where I can get something to smoke? And I said, you mean pot? And he said, yeah. And I said, because uh, he's, he's visiting from up north. He's visiting from uh, Pennsylvania, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, so I said, well, I'm a preacher. I wouldn't know about that. And he says, oh. And he said, he, we said a couple things, and then he walked into 7-Eleven, and I waited for him to come out. And uh, when he came out, I finished cleaning all out front and stacking up the water and, you know, wiping everything down. And he was in there a while, so I got a lot done. And finally came out, and he's getting back onto the motor motorbike. And uh, he had some headphones on. And I walked over, and I said, let me ask you something. And he said, um, uh, yeah, what's up? Takes off his headphones. And I said, um, why aren't you wearing a helmet? <laughs> well, I figure I, I, I've got to get in there somehow. Yeah. So, you know, I said, you know, I, I've been on this island a long time, and the traffic wasn't bad when I was young. And one time we were coming home from the Gulf and Bay. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a uh, motorcycle in the middle of the road. And there was a guy just completely wiped out. This is like 30, no, 40 years ago. I was just a little kid. Well, I remember it because it was shocking, right? Dead guy in the road. And I said, you know, that was years ago. These old people here, they can't even see the road, much less you. I said, they don't care. They don't know the roads. They're out here. They're weaving all over the place. He said, I've noticed that. <laughs> and, uh, you, say, you know, he hadn't been here long. So anyway, I'm, I'm talking to him. I'm trying to get him to think things through from an outside perspective. And I said, you know, I have a friend that I was worked with at the wastewater plant for years. And a couple years ago, his brother on a motorcycle died, cracked his head, and he died. I said, you should get a helmet. So that was my shoe in to start talking to him about Jesus, right? And I said, okay, so before you leave, I said, now you're going to go get a helmet. What if you don't get there and you don't get the helmet and you crash before you get there? I said, what's going to happen to you? He said, well, I never thought about that. I said, well, it's a good day to think about that because you're on this motorbike, right? And so uh, I started talking to him, and then I, I, I gave him the gospel. I gave him what Jesus did. And he said, you know, I, I read the Bible, but I never thought about it like this. And I said, well, today's the day. And I said, I hope you make the right decision before you take off out of the parking lot because you might not be here in 20 minutes. So anyway, there, his name is Daniel, which is another good thing. If you know names and what their etymology is, then you can use that also to, to encourage them because his name Daniel, Daniel, Don is judge, E is possessive, and L is God. 
God is my judge, right? So there you go. Um, if you cool. know those things, then it encourages them. He says, I never knew that. So now he's got something to be excited about, and he's hopefully going to read his Bible more and read it in the proper context now. But, with a little less dope, too. And with a little less dope. And I even brought that in. I said, I'm not picking on you. But when I brought in sin, I said, what are you here to do today? Right? I said, that's illegal in Florida. I said, what is that called? He said, sin. I said, yeah. I said, well, forget the dope. I said, have you ever told a lie? He says, yeah. I said, well, that's sin. Right? you got to have a, a way of talking to people before you talk to people. Because if not, all you're doing is you're accusing them. But once you get in and you know who they are and what they're doing and you have the idea of a helmet, everybody is going to be different. But look for something that's common ground with them. Right? And then you talk to them. So anyway, what was the point? Oh, yeah. The point was even Lot's wife, when she turned back to uh, uh, destruction, Paul is using examples of temporal destruction at God's hand because he's truly angry at sin. And that's why I started talking about Daniel. Daniel did not understand that God is angry at sin. And I gave him the example, this is a good thing for you to remember, is that God does not change. God is love. We've talked about this before. God does not love you, Daniel, any more than he loves Adolf Hitler. He's like, I, I said, if he does. Yeah, yeah, that's why I said to him, because he has to be able to think things through first. God is angry at sin, but he loves you, he loves you infinitely, and you just give him a little bit of understanding what God is like. It doesn't have to be deep, but now he understands. He loves me, he loves Adolf Hitler, but I'm in the same category as Hitler. You're in the same category because you have offended an infinitely holy God. He's angry at sin, and that the disobedient will be cast off. Well, that's what he has to decide now. I don't know if he chose Christ or not. I just turned around and I said, have a blessed day, and walked away and took out the garbage. Went dumpster diving and I cut my hand real good there. Look at that big, long cut. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, I have the, anyway, um, we'll go on. Um, but, what? Oh, kinds of great stuff today. Absolutely. Okay, but he is also demonstrating that God, even in destruction, will keep his covenant promises. This is an important and often overlooked aspect of Romans 9. Unless we look back to this truth, found in the promised blessings and curses, we could come to the conclusion that God has, in fact, cast off his people, Israel. We could make that conclusion, which is what the church has done for eons. But such was not the case in the first exile, and such is not the case with the second one either. Israel has been returned to the land by the covenant-keeping God. This was done to fulfill the ancient promises to this group of people not to the church, to this group of people. That's why, you know, you watch these, uh, well, you don't see them, but people are always sending me links of stuff that I should include in the Prophecy Update, and they'll send me, and it'll have a video of some Christians over in Israel that are saying, well, these Jews, you know, these are Christians in Israel, and they feel persecuted, they feel like they're left out, the Jews get all the land, and well, guess what? If they read the Bible properly, they wouldn't have this problem. The Lutheran ministries over there and all this stuff, of course they're going to think that God is, or the Jews are unfair. But it's their land. This has been given to them by God. And if they could process that, then they would say, well, this isn't unfair. We're going to join in the blessings. But they don't. Anyway, life application. Is God not in control? Who could honestly look at the nation of Israel today and not see that they must be there for a reason? How can people see that? Prior to their regathering, spiritualizing Old Testament prophecies could almost be regarded as acceptable. 
That's what Laura asked me about last week. She said, well, I said I was going to talk about it sometime. I've done it before. I'm going to do it again because Laura asked. Prior to their regathering, the spiritualizing um, spiritualizing Old Testament prophecies could be considered as acceptable, though it would still be considered far-fetched. But now, with their reestablishment in the rearview mirror, it's done. We are without excuse when we reject what God is beginning to do through them. Have faith that God is in control and that Israel of today is not an aberration. Okay, so I told her that I was going to explain this and I didn't know that I was going to explain it right now. I was going to do it at some point, but we'll do that right now. I'm going to end with 929 and then we're going to take 15 minutes and we're going to, I, I've done this in a, a recent update, okay, or, or a Roman study, but just in case somebody comes into Romans now instead of going back and watching the old ones and it's something that you all will remember and it'll help solidify it in your mind anyway. Before I go on, I got something uh, white, some white powder for oh. you. Um, uh, Steve, okay, this is for you. This is from Chris, and I forgot to give it to you. Do not take it through your nose, all right? This is diatomaceous earth. If you don't know what diatomaceous earth is, it's very good stuff. If you, yeah, you can, it's silica, you can use it for a purification of water, which wastewater plants do. If you put it, if you have bed bugs, you can put it on your bed. If you have fleas on your dog, put it on your dog. It's a natural way of killing fleas, okay? You can also take a spoonful of this, put it in milk and stir it up, and it cleans out your insides. Um, food grade, you want to get the food grade, which, but if you go to the dog store and you get the food grade, it's made food, and it's very good for you. Anyway, so that's, don't forget that. That's right here for you. The what? Why don't we give that to Miss Deborah? Oh no, that's for Steve. That's that's for his oh, dog yeah. or whatever. That, that's from Chris for Steve. So <laughs> go buy her a bag. That's fine. Anyway, um, here's what we're. This is only gonna take. We've only got about 14 more minutes, so we got to do this right now. But um, uh, Israel wasn't in the land. People said that the church had replaced Israel, and so I just like to do my thoughts when I'm writing. So I'm not, it's not gonna make any sense up here. But here is Israel, right? This is the land of Israel. You've got the Red Sea down here, okay, down at the bottom. Okay, Jerusalem is a bastion, it's a holdout. You've got Masada down here somewhere, and uh, uh, these people are, are being overthrown by the Romans, okay, and eventually they get cast out of that land, okay? So you've got the land is being, I better hang on to that, the land is being um, left barren. What happened is you've got the Romans came in and they want to build siege works against the cities, right? What do you use to build siege works? Trees. Trees, that's right. Okay, so they go and literally they did this all over Israel. They destroyed everything everywhere. There was like one or two places that weren't destroyed because they were favorable to the Romans and the, the Greek society. But for the most part, they went in, they cut down trees, forests, forests to destroy these cities. It completely changed the weather patterns in Israel. They used to have what are called the former and the latter rains. Former rains would be in the, I believe, the October time frame, and then you have the latter rains, which would be um, in the springtime, okay? Got the former and latter rains, two rains. They're necessary for things to grow, for agriculture, for everything. If they didn't have both rains, the land would die, okay? So they've cut down all these trees, and so the land is now barren. They don't have the same cycle of rains anymore, okay? And so nothing is growing. Further, you've got Egypt down here, Okay, Egypt is here and the Nile goes out, right? And it's got all these fingers at the end of the Nile, the, the canals and stuff, but you got this, this river that comes out. Okay, now let her answer this. What happens when a river flows out into the ocean? What? Silt. Silt, okay. 
her answer it next time. But anyway, I, I, she's the one to ask, and I want to make sure she understands what's going on. So we've got silt being washed out, especially there was no Aswan Dam at the time, and you've got all of this stuff that is up in the mountains, and it, it's a very silty river, okay? Tons of it, and it's a very big river. It's got a lot of water, so it's pumping out tons of silt. What happens when the silt gets into the uh, Mediterranean Sea? The Mediterranean Sea works this way, okay? That's the way the, uh, the uh, currents. Uh, currents go. The silt goes in, and where does it go? Up to Israel. Up to Israel, and it blocks up all of the rivers that are flowing down from the mountains. The mountains are over here, the rivers flow down, and it plugs up all of the rivers. Okay, what happens when you plug up a river? It stopped flowing, right? I, I, what is silt? Oh, oh, silt is, is sand. It's, it's <laughs> the stuff that flows out. So it's, like, like it, muddy, it, water, it's like muddy water, it's sand, it's all of that kind of stuff. When a river is trying to flow out to the ocean and it can't, what happens? It becomes a swamp. It becomes a swamp. So you see what's going on here? You've got the land is no water. You've got the few rivers that are flowing stop flowing out to the ocean, and so they plug up. And so all of the stuff that's laying there becomes what's called detrius. It becomes like um, hummus. You know when you eat hummus, it looks gross? Well, that's what it looks like. Everything is, everything is um, uh, decaying, all the leaves, everything just decays. And so you have what's called a bog. We got them in Florida, right? All of this is just gross, okay? And then when you have a bog full of stagnant water, what do you get? Skeetos, and you get typhoid, and you get dysentery, and you get, so nobody wants this land. This land is here, and it is completely unusable. We got seven more minutes. It's completely unusable. Nobody wants it, nobody lives there. Very few people live here. If you read Innocence Abroad, which he just read, you can read it online, or you can get it very cheap from Amazon. You read it, it is a wonderful book. You'll find yourself laughing, but it will also tell you that he went in. This is Mark Twain. He was all over the, the trips of the Holy Land where Paul was and everything. He got up to Dan, which is in the north of Israel, and he walked through, and he describes exactly what he saw in the land of Israel back in the 1800s. He saw barrenness. He saw wilderness. He saw people that were so poor, very few people, and he counts how many. He gives the number of them. And what we have today about the Palestinians is a complete lie. He documented it. It's all there. There was not all these people. The majority of the people were Jews, believe it or not, but there were still very few of them, okay? The people were all beggars. There was no productivity going on. It was just a, a, a terrible place. It was cursed by God, okay? So this is what the land is like. There's a Jew over here in China. There's 10,000 of them up here in Russia. There's 40,000 of them here in Germany. There's some up here in Iceland. You've got six of them up here in, in uh, Norway. I mean, there's a couple Jews around the world, but they're not a united group of people. They all do their own thing, but they're not in any way cohesive, okay? What would you think if you were the church and the, the church said, I have all of these promises from the Old Testament, right? I've got tons of promises from the Old Testament that say that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you prosperity, I'm going to give you grain and wine and, and all of these blessings, and there's no Jews left. There's only one of two choices. Either this isn't the word of God, it's false, or the church must have replaced Israel. And we're going to spiritualize what God said, because we do it all the time. The book of Revelation says, I saw this up in heaven, and 
how do you describe that? We just say that's an allegory, right? We do it with the book of Zechariah. All these things that we have, we spiritualize them. So they took all of these prophecies and they say, we're the church and we're getting, do you understand now why this happened? Yes. It doesn't mean that they were right. And there were theologians all along that said that Israel will be back in the land. Right. There were a few people that understood this, but most people had no idea. No idea. Until finally in the 1800s, the Jews started going back in. They started going back in and they started buying this land from the Ottoman Empire at very exorbitant prices. They paid a lot of money because they knew that they wanted to be back there. And the Ottomans said, those stupid Jews, there's nothing there. It's just junk. And they're making money off of them, right? And so what happens is they go in there and the first thing they do is they start draining the swamps by clearing the beaches and they go in there and they plant. You can go there today and you can see these trees, these giant trees that were little branches and stuff that they brought from Australia, eucalyptus and all of these trees that suck up water and their leaves are designed in order to hydrate very quickly. In other words, they suck up water like a pump and then it, it evaporates. And so they've got these trees they planted and they drain them. This is what we did in the Everglades. When we drained the Everglades, we took the same trees and we planted them here and now we have sugarcane and we've got orange crops, right? But you couldn't do that before. But now they've got all of this drain, they've got all of the swamps dry at the expense of their lives. Lots of people died, right? Lots of people died because they were typhoid and dysentery. They, they struggled to make this land something when it was nothing. Nobody had done anything with it for 2,000 years. But now they've got that. And what happens, let her answer this, what happens when you drain a swamp that's full of organic <coughs> material that has been there for 2,000 years? Soil. Let her answer. Anyway, okay. <laughs> anyway, you've got, I, I, she's the one that asked, I want her to think this through because you've all heard this before. She hasn't. So you've got exactly what she said. You've got the richest, most fertile land on the planet. And now you have water that's flowing freely. It's no longer bad. You've got this wonderful, rich stuff. And so what happens? The prophecies from the Old Testament are being fulfilled in our lifetime. And that is unacceptable that people can't see that now. You could almost say, well, I understand why the church didn't get this, okay? Blindness in part has come upon Israel. Blindness in part came upon the Gentiles. We had no idea that this would ever happen. So I'm not trying to excuse our stupidity, but remember, they didn't have satellites. They didn't have TV where you could say, oh, all they had was there's 15 Jews in our town and they're a bunch of you know, they don't hang around with us, they don't do anything, right? So you could understand, what do they do, sir? It can't be them. So that is what happened there. So now do you understand, that's, she asked that last week, I mentioned it, this is what happened in the world. They are back in the land. It is exactly what the Bible said would happen, and yet the world still can't see it. So blindness in part has not just come upon the church, blindness in part, or blindness in full, has come upon the church. I mean, there's. You take the remnant was saved out of Israel. Well, there's a remnant in this, this church that actually looks at the world and says, you know what? This is the way it should be. Okay? The dating also. The dating. the dating. The precision of the dating. Everything about what has happened to Israel is an absolute miracle. And, okay, we got five more minutes. This is what happened. We could go into that more. There's other things that have happened, but it was the Jews that went back in. There's an old saying that the Jews were made for the land and the land was made for the Jews. Yeah. One is incompatible without the other. They need each other because that's the way the Lord designed it. They've gone in there and they have done the most marvelous things. They have more technology out of that teeny little country with those few people than 
almost all of the rest of the world combined. They do so much development. They do I, 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 prophecy update. I, I won't get into it now, but something that I may mention about South Africa, which occurred um, with the Jews, right? They wanted to help South Africa with their water crisis. I won't get into it now, but they are, well, I can't, we don't have time, but they are there for a reason. And the world that does not see this does not want to right. see this. It's not the way it was before. That's why when you came up and you were curious, you know, well, what about the church? And do you understand that now? Why? Yeah. Okay. It's very clear. Blindness in part has come upon Israel does not mean that the church knows everything. Right. It means that we obviously don't know as well. Because if we didn't, I've asked this before, if we knew that it was up to the Jews for Jesus to come back, what would be the one thing that the church would be doing? They'd be evangelizing the Jews, and they did not. You know, there were a few people that evangelized him. Martin Luther tried, and he got so frustrated, he says they're obviously of the devil, right? Because they, they, they don't want, no, they weren't ready yet. Well, they were. You're of your father, the devil. If you're not in Christ, you're in the devil. But he really, he flipped when the Jews wouldn't accept it because he says it's so obvious. Yeah. It's so obvious. He couldn't understand. I like the term you used earlier, a fulfilled Jew. A fulfilled Jew. That's Absolutely. So much better. So you need to become a Christian. It's like, no, no, no. Oh. you need to be a Jew fulfilled. A Jew fulfilled. That's right. Okay. We have got to close. It's time. And uh, let's see. Is there anything else that we No. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful word you've given us. We thank you for the book of Romans which is so wonderful. We thank you for the fact that Paul reaches back into the Old Testament to give us lessons in the new and uh, how he shows us very clearly what our state in the world is and what the state of the Jews is. And I would pray for anybody which is struggling with the doctrine of dispensationalism that they would think it through, that they would think through the words of Jesus and who he is speaking to. What is it that he is relaying to us? And what is Paul relaying to us? And when we can make those distinctions, we can understand what you are doing and why it is so important so i would pray that people would think about that if they disagree then let them study to show themselves approved but uh i do believe it's the correct doctrine is that we are to divide the bible in this way and that uh, what paul says is what we are to do and because it's you that inspired him so lord we thank you for this we pray to you for the people that we mentioned earlier with their many many physical troubles and and difficulties and just may your guiding hand be upon them your hand of healing and your hand of grace we thank you and we praise you in jesus name amen, amen. okay back this baby up here i don't know if sergio's here but if he is sergio you need to turn off the uh, computer over there not the computer the uh, uh break the uh screen anyway if he, he might be in bed already but Okay, here we go. And all right, everybody, have a wonderful week. We love you so much. Take good care of yourself, and we'll hope to see you Sunday. Revelation as well, I believe. I, I could be wrong on that. It's met two times in the tribes, and I think they are in there once. But. Uh